Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My name is Greg Dowd. I came to the University of Michigan in 2002 to direct the program in Native American Studies. I now chair the Department of American Culture which is an American Studies and Ethnic Studies department at the university. I'm also a professor in the History Department, and I continue on the faculty of the Native American Studies program. I teach and I research early American and Native American history. I teach courses that run from the distant past into our own time, such as American constitutional history, and for the American Culture Department, my course, What is an American? Challenges to Liberty and Equality. The Declaration of Independence was part of the Revolutionary War. The war had actually raged for over a year before the Second Continental Congress released the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. So like all wars and all revolutions, multiple forces lay behind this violence. And we should remember actually that the violence was intense. Um, it would ultimately cost a higher percentage of lives than any other American war except the American Civil War. Part of the background to this horrible war lies in the fact that Great Britain and France had fought an earlier war, the Seven Years War, which left Great Britain terribly in debt by 1763 and in which a lot of American colonists and many Native American peoples had fought. That was also a costly war, and the war's legacy of hardship, economic hardship, physical suffering, anti-Native American hatred, British debt, all of these things surface in the Declaration of Independence. And that legacy of that war, that earlier war, the Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, as some people call it, had a role in the American Revolution. It's another example of wars having unintended consequences. So what happened was facing great debt and in the wake of this great war, Great Britain tried to economize and to rationalize its new empire. And the British Parliament began to claim full authority over the colonies, which it had never done before. It never really tried to uh, rule the colonies as it said it could in all cases whatsoever. And uh, as it began to tighten its grip on the American colonies, the colonial legislators, the members of the colonial legislatures, these were mostly middle and upper class white men, they rejected the authority of British Parliament. Each colony had its own legislative system. And the colonists were not only jealous to protect their legislatures against this overseas parliament, but they were also fearful of having their wealth extracted by parliament. Each colony had its own legislative system, and the colonists wanted to protect this. And so in a constitutional sense, the revolution was the result of a struggle between these colonial legislatures and the British Parliament. So when the colonists charged no taxation without representation, they were not opposing taxes on principle, they were opposing being taxed by a British Parliament in which they had no representatives. So the colonial legislatures had been willing to see the British Parliament, you know, maybe go so far as to regulate trade on the high seas, but they refused to allow Parliament to tax them or to regulate their internal affairs. They were making a case that appears in the Declaration of Independence, a case for government by the consent of the governed. This meant that Great Britain might lean on the colonies for the extraction of wealth. It would mean that if Parliament had the authority to do 
what it was trying to do. It could extract wealth from the colonies without their consent. It's important to remember that the British American colonies were themselves emerging colonial powers. They had been extracting land from Native Americans. They had been extracting and were continuing to extract labor from enslaved people of African descent. They were extracting labor from indentured European servants. The colonial leaders who were for the most part of British descent and who saw themselves as British subjects did not wish themselves to be sources for the British imperial extraction of wealth. So they went into rebellion. They had to try to convince the king to acknowledge their grievances, but King George III rejected every one of their petitions and he sided with the British parliament. He saw it as his constitutional duty to side with the parliament. Because of his deference to parliament and because of his deference to the British constitution, he became one of the most beloved rulers in all of British history. But those very same characteristics, which meant acceding to the degradation of the colonies, by these same characteristics, George III became a tyrant to the colonists. And the Declaration of Independence is aimed directly and explicitly at the king. If you read it carefully, you'll see that allusions to parliament are there, but they're not direct because the rebellious colonists did not even acknowledge parliamentary authority. They could not declare independence from parliament, a body they did not recognize. So instead they focus their attention on the crown and they break with it in the declaration. The largest part of the Declaration of Independence is therefore a list of the long train of abuses committed by the king against the colonies. And it's a long train of abuses, I think 27 in number. He has burned our towns, he has closed our legislatures. He has allowed a pretended authority gesturing toward parliament to assert control over the colonies. This is an abuse of the people and it meant that the king had abdicated the ancient consent that the people had theoretically given when they consented to a monarchy. His abuses meant that the people could legitimately throw him off. They had a fundamental right to break with him. This is the argument to the Declaration of Independence. It's an argument that the signers submitted to a candid world. It's a justification for revolution. And they made it in language of what today we would call human rights, equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But many of your listeners will know that there's something wrong here. There's an irony, there's perhaps a hypocrisy, but there's also something right. And that's a kind of the American dilemma. What, what are Americans to do? Today, things move incredibly rapidly and we can organize remarkably rapidly and uh, protests uh, erupt almost immediately because uh, images circulate widely, videos circulate widely. But even in the 18th century, by the standards of the day, one of the things we can see from materials such as those, as those housed in the Clements Library here at the University of Michigan, we can see that immediately on the release of the declaration, the entire contents circulated pretty rapidly by the standards of the day. Those words, all men are created equal, were read in taverns, from pulpits, in the British ministry, uh, within a month of uh, the declaration's printing. So people read often aloud the opening segments they asserted that asserted fundamental human equality, government by consent of the governed, the sovereign right of a people to rebel against tyranny. And in the Clements Library, you find original newspapers, early books, and especially British imperial correspondence that shows 
that the information could circulate incredibly rapidly. As I say, in August, British subjects were reading, in England, were reading uh, the declaration that had been signed only you know, in the previous month. And this was in the age of sail, not in the age of steam. So today, popular movements are forcing us to confront again the persistent issues of systemic or structural racism that you also see in these materials, the materials that circulated along with the Declaration of Independence and indeed in the Declaration itself. So the Declaration rapidly appeared in newspapers and it did so in issues that are dappled with advertisements offering rewards for enslaved persons who had bolted for their freedom. Those fellow human beings appear in demeaning descriptions that sometimes carry evidence of serious physical injury and terrible abuse. There are also advertisements for lands from which Native Americans had recently been dispossessed. At the masthead of the Pennsylvania Journal stands an image of a stereotypically sullen American Indian complete with feathers, bow, and arrow. So as some Americans read the Declaration of Independence on those very pages, we can also see the enduring colonial and imperial character of the new nation that was taking shape. In America today, we face this pandemic. In fact, the globe faces it. It's a world problem. But we in America face what appears to be, and I think the statistics will bear this out, failed governance, at least at the center. And that's my opinion, but we have 5% of the world's population. We have 20% of the world's deaths from this pandemic. And many Americans sense that their government is failing them. It's failed in its duty. It has abdicated in many ways its responsibility to protect to, you know, to protect us, to promote the general welfare, which is what the Constitution says in its preamble, the government is meant to do. So this, this is feeding, this is underlying, this is part of the sense of rebelliousness. But more directly, and this is very relevant to the same point, more directly, the abuses of police against Black citizens, the killings of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, and many others before them, this is feeding the sense that American governance is failing to protect the citizens. It's failing to protect African-American citizens. The very bodies that are supposed to protect them seem to be turning on. So that's where we get the slogan that's circulating, defund the police. And for some, that slogan is call for revolutionized government. For others, it's a more moderate call for reform. But whatever the internal difference is, the broad popular movement, at least it seems to me, reflects a profound discontent with the way our institutions are failing to meet the needs and are not reflecting the desires of the democratic republic, that is, of the people. So the government isn't promoting the general welfare, it's not doing it very well, and it does not seem to reflect the ideal of equality that's expressed in the Declaration. So when one looks at the worrying failure of our voting systems, when one worries about efforts to suppress the vote, protesters are also challenging what they see as anti-democratic tendencies in America. And I, when I say anti-democratic, I mean the word democratic to be with a small d. Voting does not seem to be working very well. So some people are taking it to the street. And as they do so, some of them are challenging monuments. And that's one of the key debates is over monuments. Monuments have become a really contentious point in our current moment especially monuments to leaders of the Confederacy, to portraits of Confederate leaders. These are being removed and attacked as memorials to white supremacy. 
memorials to traitors against the United States and memorials to betrayers of the principles of equality, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This seems to me to be a fair characterization. The monuments were erected as part of the politics of segregation and Blacks' subjugation, and that's a politics that lasted well into my lifetime. They're not good history. They're not history at all. They were political statements in a bad cause. There's nothing really sacred about them. But that leads me to think about the Declaration of Independence. And I, I guess the way I think about this is, I don't think it's a sacred document. I think we should remember that it was a human creation, not a divine creation. It did not come down from heaven. That it was deeply flawed should not surprise us. The Declaration of Independence, like most of American history, is tortured by this tension between liberty, equality on the one hand, and slavery and its legacy on the other, as well as Native American dispossession. So it's exhilarating and profoundly influential in its calls for fundamental human equality, the fundamental right of the people, the sovereign power over their government. And on the other hand, it has this torturous fact that it was written largely by a slaveholder, that it was signed by many slaveholders and other expansionists, and by its last charge against the king, if you read the last of these, I think 27 charges against the king, it points directly to slave insurrections and it points directly to Native American struggles against American expansion at the colonies' frontiers, but it does not admit to them directly, even though it points to them, gestures toward them. So the last charge against the king reads in part like this. I'm summarizing a little bit. He has incited domestic insurrections amongst us and has brought down upon the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian. It actually has more pejorative language than that, but I'm gonna leave it at that. So he has incited domestic insurrections amongst us. That is a direct reference to the actions of James Murray, Lord Dunmore, the Royal Governor of the state of Virginia or the colony of Virginia, I should say, who had promised freedom to all enslaved men if they were held by rebels against the crown. If they would join his forces, if these slaves who belonged to revolutionaries, American revolutionaries would join his forces, they would be freed, he said. And many did join him. Dunmore issued this remarkable proclamation as he was being hounded out of the colony of Virginia. And in the course of the revolution, many enslaved people, including some who were held in captivity by none other than George Washington, would seek freedom by joining these British forces. Now, Dunmore's measure was not a general emancipation. This was not like Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. And Dunmore himself would later govern the slaveholding British colony of the Bahamas. He was no liberator. He was no great emancipator. But many African-American people saw a chance for freedom during the revolution, some by fighting against the United States, and many took it. So that was the charge against the king, that first one. He has incited domestic insurrections among us. His royal governor had incited rebellions against slavery. Enslaved people needed no king. They needed no governor to see deep wrong in slavery. But many did take the opportunity between 1775 and 1783 to break their bonds. And then that other part. He has brought down upon the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian. That reference is a little more vague. 
British agents, like American agents, did work among Native Americans. They sought either American Indian neutrality or they sought alliance during the emerging war and expanding war. But by July 1776, when the declaration was signed, there's not a lot of unambiguous evidence of British instigation for attacks on the colonies. British agents knew that there were a lot of loyalists in the colonies, including on the frontiers, and they didn't want to damage those people. So that was, this charge is a little more ambiguous. But nonetheless, many Native American peoples did take up arms against uh, the emerging United States because a lot of American settlers were expanding westward and taking their lands. So the Native Americans didn't need British instigation in order to fight against American expansion. And some of them were doing so in 1775 and 1776 as the declaration was being considered and as it was made. So in any case, slavery and the expansion of British colonial settlements onto Native American lands both made it into the Declaration of Independence's last charge against the king, and they, they leave us with that sense of, with that stain, kind of a stain on the Declaration, a stain of racism. Not only was the Declaration drafted by a slaveholder, it even places the interests of the new country against Native American and African American liberty, equality, and the pursuit of happiness. So equality and racism keep the Declaration on a kind of a knife's edge. It is indeed a founding document for our country. So I think the current movement, so I've digressed into the past, but the current movement reflects on this history, it reflects on American history, and it reflects on the Declaration as it turns to monuments. The current movement reflects the spirit of the Declaration also as it insists that the people have the power and the right to seek redress for inadequate or abusive government. As I've said, I don't think the Declaration is a sacred document. I do highly value many of its words. It isn't sacred. As we know, it was signed by slaveholders and expansionists rather than by divine beings. Those signers did not, however, direct all of American history. They did not direct the later course of American history. And the Declaration had within it really powerful words, very good words that had been extracted and used by many who struggled against slavery and inequality. Great examples include the women and men, including black men like Frederick Douglass, who participated in the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention and who signed the famous Declaration of Sentiments, a document that was modeled on the Declaration of Independence, a remarkable tract that argues for women's equality even as it analyzes the costs, even the psychological costs, of women's political, economic, and social degradation. Abraham Lincoln, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, would argue for the consideration of black equality. I admit he was fairly tentative about this in 1858, but he gestured toward it as he pointed to the Declaration of Independence and to the line that all men are created equal. Lincoln said that the signers knew that they were declaring equality in the face of their own slaveholding. But he imagined that they intended 
the meaning of the phrase, all men are created equal to develop over time. This is a remarkable argument he made. He said, quite simply, that they put it there for future use. Now, I don't think that's good history. I don't think that's what the founders were doing. But I do think that it's a, a, a good understanding of American history. That is that the words were taken up by popular movements and were made and good use was made of them in, in the future. That's what happened. That is exactly what happened. We have gotten good use out of that phrase and of those opening words of the Declaration of Independence. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address of 1863 that followed his Emancipation Proclamation, his Gettysburg Address pledged a new birth of freedom. When he said four score and seven years ago, he was, he was counting back to the Declaration of Independence. So all of this harkens back to the Declaration. During the Civil War, black men fighting in that war led some Northern Republicans and even Lincoln himself to begin to argue for black suffrage. A fight that was still going on a, central a century later when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King quoted the Declaration of Independence in his you know, famous I Have a Dream speech. And for many of us who have grown up, you know, spent a lot of our lives and I'm in my 60s listening to King's speech over the course of our lives, when we read those words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. We actually hear them in our minds in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's tones. And he landed very hard. He emphasized the word all for all men. It's really remarkable. I think the power of the Declaration is undeniable as stained as may be its original source. So it did not come down from heaven, but popular movements have made it a lot better. After the declaration was signed uh, in its wake, millions of Americans suffered under slavery. They did so for almost 90 years. For much longer, millions of Americans suffered a long history of segregation, of racial discrimination in medicine, housing, education, and employment. These have lasted into our own time. And for much longer than a full century after the declaration, to some degree, even into this millennium, the United States has plundered Native Americans of sacred sites of their lands and has forcibly dislocated hundreds of thousands of people, causing enormous suffering, enormous amount of premature death. The United States has a heavy responsibility here. Native Americans on the reservations did not even gain United States citizenship until 1924. That is long after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, which guarantees birthright citizenship. And that, was, that was adopted in 1868. The history of Native American voting rights parallels in many ways that of African American voting rights. And the history of discrimination against other peoples, against Asian Americans, against Latinos, that history also has to be considered. And we see it here in our current moment as well. With detention centers for Latino children, with anti-Chinese and anti-Muslim rhetoric coming from the highest officers of our country. So to me, the takeaway is, as Lincoln said another time, he said, we cannot escape history. We might say that history 
has its knee on our throat. Lincoln meant that, I think, in two ways. He meant that history is with us systemically, structurally. But he also meant that we can change it. Um, we can be part of it. And he did that. He was a part of it. He was part of a popular movement, an anti-slavery movement. So there's nothing sacred about our founding documents. They were written by men, were written by white men with particular purposes in mind. They were the result of internal conflicts among those men. And also they were the result of compromises very much as much as they were the result of efforts to build a new nation. But as flawed as they are, because their words have been given new meaning by advocates of fuller democracy and equality, I think those words remain worth reading and pondering. The words do insist on fundamental human equality. They assert life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as basic human rights. They say that when government ceases to meet the responsibility of the governed, the people who are the ultimate source of power have the right to demand better. And if the demands are not met, to replace that government. The words are not sacred, but they are good words to think about. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.